you all can't see outside, but I can, and it's just really coming down out there, so it's probably best if we just stay here as long as we possibly can together this morning. What an opportunity. See, I have your best in heart. I hope you know that. America really is in the midst of a rising anxiety epidemic, or so reads the headline of a Science Alert article from May of 2018. The article says, if you're feeling stressed, uncertain about what the future holds, or even physically unsafe, try not to panic. You're definitely not alone. According to a new survey by the American Psychiatry Association, the anxiety level in America is on the rise. Almost 40% of people say they are more fearful and anxious this year than they were a year ago. And that follows a 36% jump between 2016 and 2017. According to the survey, the increase in fear and anxiety is common to both men and women. And it crosses age and race. Millennials are more fearful than older people. But the fear level in baby boomers is also increasing. What are we anxious, fearful about? Health, safety, finances, politics, and relationships. Arguably, these fears are often tied to one another, thanks in no small part to today's 24-7 news cycle and the near-constant digital and social connectivity that frames modern life. Sadly, the article says, there's no quick fix for this fear whether it's political upheaval, physical vulnerability, or the ever clearer prospects of a looming environmental catastrophe, there are just so many factors that can induce our apprehension, and there's no easy off switch we can reach for. Now, I sense this article has some truth in it. Do you? I feel like uh, our country, people around us are becoming more fearful. And so I thought it would be beneficial for us to spend the Advent season, the God with us season, addressing fear. You know, what is the the source of it? What's the place it should have in the life of a believer? What can we do about it? What does God have to say about fear? What does he do to alleviate it? Things we need to think about when it comes to fear. And at the end of the day, we need to realize this. Very simply, we must fight fear with faith in Jesus. We must fight fear with faith in Jesus, simple but true. And that's what I want us to talk about this morning. As we come to the passage, a little break from Matthew during the um, Advent season. So if you have your Bibles with you, please turn the Old Testament to the book of Isaiah. The 42nd chapter, Isaiah chapter 42. And when you found your place in Isaiah chapter 42, I'm going to ask you to stand so that we might hear read together the word of the living God. Isaiah chapter 42, beginning in verse 1, this is the word of the Lord. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. 
I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. We're so thankful for a God like you are to us that loves us and cares about us enough to speak your truth to us so that our lives can be guided in the right way, so that we know know what to do with this thing called fear, so that it doesn't destroy our lives. We ask you now, Lord, that you would be faithful to your promise as we know you are. And you promised to add your blessing to the reading and the hearing of your word. So we pray that you would do that now as the Spirit of God comes and joins the truth of your word so that we are transformed people. That's our hope, our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much. You may be seated. You know, being fearful is not unique to us. It's not unique to the circumstances in which we live, and we live in a time unlike no other in the spectrum of human history. And I don't need to list those differences for you. Being, hum- being, being fearful is just part of being human. All, all the way back in the Garden of Eden, God comes to Adam. Adam, where are you? He asks. And Adam responds, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was what? Afraid, so I hid myself. So whether it's children with cell phones, that's a scary thing to me. Political turmoil, physical vulnerability because of shootings in a school or a mall or a synagogue. Tsunamis, hurricanes, looming catastrophe, environmentally speaking. Sudden life-altering illnesses. There are so many beyond our control circumstances in all of our lives. And they make us afraid. And fear doesn't feel good. No surprise. The American Psychiatry Association says that increased stress and anxiety can significantly impact many aspects, many aspects of people's lives, including their mental health, and it can affect their families. So the good news for us this morning is that God has something better for you and for me than fear. He's got an antidote for our fear. Your fear, my fear, the things that we fear together. And the antidote is simply this. It's found in verse 1. Behold my servant. When you're afraid, when I'm afraid, when we are together afraid, the antidote for this fear, according to what God says, is behold my servant. The Lord wants us to know that this is his antidote. He wants to make sure that we are paying attention. And so the word behold there is an interjection. Now, I need to stop and confess something here. I'm a little mad at all of you all. So because I care about you so much and because I want to handle the word of God rightly, I needed to tell you that this word, behold, 
is an interjection. And as a result of my needing to tell you that the word behold is an interjection, I've had an annoying song stuck in my head all week long. I've been walking into rooms singing this song. Anybody here old enough to remember Schoolhouse Rock from the 1970s? Anybody remember Schoolhouse Rock? Those little short animated features that they showed during Sunday, Saturday morning cartoons that taught us about history or, or math or grammar. You know, I'm just a bill. Yes, I'm only a bill. And I'm sitting here on Capitol Hill. Remember that one? Do you remember conjunction, junction, what's your function? Yeah, so well, well, there was one also for interjections. Do you remember that one? Interjections, show excitement, hey, or emotion, wow! That's the song I've been singing all week. And now you're going to be singing it too, and that makes me so happy. Interjections, they're followed by an exclamation point or a point that exclaims. That's what we have in verse 1. Behold, exclamation point, my servant. Now in the Old Testament, this interjection word, behold, is used to call attention to a fact. Here's a fact, interjection, exclamation point. And when you have taken notice of that fact, some action has got to be taken because of that fact, or some conclusion has to be reached. Here are a couple of examples of interjections from Scripture. The very first one appearing in Scripture, Genesis chapter 3. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever... Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Behold, interjection. Look, look what man has done. Adam and Eve have sinned. They know good and evil. Now, based on that fact, God takes action. He sends Adam and Eve out of the garden and places a guard to the path of the tree of life. Another example, also in Genesis chapter 11, the story of the Tower of Babel. The people say, Come, let us build ourselves a tower, a city and a tower, with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves. The Lord God says, Behold, interjection. They are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. And so the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of the earth. Behold, interjection, look, pride and arrogance and independence and soul-killing self-sufficiency is developing among people of one language. And so based on that fact, God acted. He confused their languages and dispersed the people over the face of the earth. Behold the fact. See the conclusion based on it that must follow. And so now let's go back to Isaiah 42.1. Behold, interjection, looked, my servant, the Messiah. Consider the fact of who he is and draw conclusions and act in light of who he is. See, Isaiah began his prophetic ministry 
in 740 B.C. In fewer than 20 years, the northern kingdom of Israel is going to fall. And that kingdom is never, ever going to rise again. They're at the very end. If you were here last week, our guest preacher, David Donovan, gave us a bit of the setting for the people of Isaiah's time. Israel is no longer a world power. Instead, they are a small, weak nation, but they're surrounded, the north and the east and the south, by much stronger, more powerful nations. And those nations, they just use that little strip of land called Israel as a passageway to go back and forth and attack one another. So we can imagine then the insecurities and the anxieties and the fears of such a small nation surrounded by nations of such power. And we can imagine the the hopelessness. They're not a new nation on the ascent, rising in political power and military influence. That would be exciting. That would be invigorating. Instead, Israel is on the decline. It's in decay. And all they have are the stories of the glory days of the past. It's a case of, oh, how the mighty have fallen. And yet the people of Israel crave that power. They crave that glory that was once theirs, but they can't get it. And so these are the people on the verge of being wiped out nation to whom Isaiah writes, Behold. But specifically, in chapters 40, 40 through 55, Isaiah has a different audience in mind. Now he's got the people in mind of the kingdom of Judah, the southern kingdom of Israel, after they too have fallen and been taken into captivity into Babylon. It's not difficult for us to imagine the hopeless feelings of people who have been taken from their country and displaced in a foreign nation. It's not difficult to imagine the fears of a minority people trying to live life and do business among a majority people who speak a different language and have a completely different way of doing things and different customs. What evil might those foreigners be blamed with? You know, after the attack on Pearl Harbor during World War II, between 110 and 120,000 Americans of Japanese ancestry were relocated and incarcerated in concentration camps because they were Japanese. In the Civil Liberties Act of 1988, the U.S. government apologized to them. And they said that their actions were based on race prejudice, war, hysteria, and failure of political leadership. But imagine what it felt like to be a person of Japanese descent in that moment in history. So it will be for these people living in exile in Babylon. So very different from the people who've subjugated them. Fear is going to be a reality for their lives. Turn back to to chapter 41. If you still have your Bible open. Chapter 41, verse 10. God says in that verse, fear not. Why would God command that? 
Because the people are going to be afraid. What's God's antidote to this fact of fear? Interjection. Behold my servant. Look in the second half of verse 13. Fear not. Why would God make this command? Because he knows his people will be afraid. What's God's antidote to this fact of fear? Interjection. Behold my servant. Look at verse 14. Fear not. Why why would God command that? Because the people will be afraid. What's God's antidote to that fear? Interjection. Behold my servant. So we have the fact of fear. And we have God's interjection, the fact that he has a Messiah. And so now these fearful people have to make decisions. And they have to take action based on the reality of the Messiah. And the conclusion that they should reach is that they need not be afraid. A Messiah is coming. The action they should take is to live as people of faith because they are a part of a story that's moving in a really good direction, a Messiah direction. Therefore, their story and the fear of it, no matter what they're experiencing, it has meaning. It's not random. It's not chaotic because it's from God. And God is a God of order. And God says, His servant is coming. But in order to defeat fear, whatever it is, we have to see the servant as God's servant. So in order to do that, let's put the emphasis or the emphasis in a different place. As we read this interjection and what follows. Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, My chosen, in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. When we put the emphasis on the word my, it puts God's servant in contrast to all the other servants that might be in the world. And it demonstrates that God's servant, God's Messiah, his antidote for fear stands against all the others. And that's really the purpose of chapter 41 here in Isaiah. Let's stay in that chapter for a minute. Because in this chapter, God is bringing us into his courtroom. And God calls all the Gentile nations, including the Babylonians who have enslaved these people, he calls them to stand before his bar of judgment. And God opens this session of the courtroom with quiet in the court. Look in verse 1. Listen to me in silence. And then God begins the court session. And he says, let the nations come forward and speak. Let's meet together in this place of judgment. And so God speaks first. Look in verses 2 through 5. In those verses, he describes his mighty acts in history. He talks about all that he has done and how he has actually brought about salvation. That's what he's done. Now it's time for the nations to speak, to approach the bench. What have they done? Come forward. Come on, name it. Describe it. How does what you have done compare to what God has done? And so in verses four, 5 through 7, we have this pitiful sight. We've got these 
pagan nations. They haven't served God. They haven't honored God as God. And now they're in God's courtroom, please imagine. And they're called to approach the bench of the one and only true and living God. And verse 5 says this, they approach and come forward. Each helps the other and says to his brother, be strong. It's like I've told you this before. The tin man and the scarecrow and the lion, they're quaking. They're, they're trying to hold each other up as they approach for the first time the great and powerful Oz. And the tin man is rattling and the scarecrow is losing his stuffing. And the brave lion turns around and bolts for the back door. Same thing. These ones who have made the idols that they claimed would give hope, that they prescribed as an antidote for fear, now encourage each other as they come before God. That the work they've done, it's good. It's good work. Now listen, this is a fine idol you have made. Fine work. But then right after that, look in verse 7. It says, they strengthen it with nails so that it cannot be moved. In other words, they bring their idol and they have to nail it down so it won't topple over. So much for powerful idols. Can't even stand up on its own. And the irony is that those who crafted these idols, they know they can't stand up on their own. And God's people need to see that this is the best the world has to offer. Those who don't have God and His Messiah as the center of all things, those who do not behold Him, Those who do not relate everything in life to Him and His glory have only fear and only toppling idols. Well, they approach the bench. And in verse 21, God taunts the other gods of the nations. Not because they really are gods, there are no other gods, but because the people believe that they are gods. And He says to them, Set forth your case, bring your proof. Verse 22, Let them bring their idols and tell us what is to happen. Tell us the former things, what they are, that we might consider them, that we might know their outcome or declare to us the things yet to come. Tell us what is to come hereafter that we may know that you are God's. Do something, do good or do harm that we may be dismayed and terrified. In other words, he calls on them, do what God can do. Offer solutions to the problems. That humanity faces. Offer real hope to suffering, struggling people. Provide an antidote to alleviate the fear that grips them. But of course, they cannot. Because they are not God. They have no solutions. No antidotes. And when none of them come forward, who would dare? When none come forward to offer any answers... Or wise counsel, God inserts an interjection. Verse 24, behold, here's the fact, you're nothing. Your work is less than nothing. That's an observable fact. Look in verse 29, interjection. Behold, they're all delusion. Their works are nothing. Their metal images are empty wind. Now these are the facts. And so God's people have to act according to those facts. 
And they have to draw conclusions based on them. The exiled people of God have no hope or help. They have no antidote to the fear that grips them in their captivity from anything the world has to offer. And so through this imaginative courtroom drama, God has demonstrated that all those who claim to have knowledge, all those who claim to have wisdom, all those who claim they can bring about justice in the world, all those who claim they can set things right, they cannot. And so now God has his people prepared for his great interjection. Behold, my servant, you can do nothing. You have no hope, but behold, my servant, he's different. In him there is hope and an antidote to fear. This is the conclusion that God's people have to come to, these fearful, exiled people. And until you and I have reached that very same conclusion, we're not going to have any real freedom from fear. See, I think we are syncretistic in the way we view the world and live our lives. We, we mix things together. We love the Lord. You love the Lord, do you? Yeah. You worship the Lord. You're here this morning. But on practical matters that really cause us fear, I think sometimes our knee-jerk reaction is to go to the world first and see what it has to offer us as an antidote for that fear, some way to alleviate them. And listen, all truth is God's truth. All truth, it belongs to God. Even those who do not acknowledge God as God, they have His truth in some ways because God's truth is everywhere in this world. That's what it means when we say common grace. It's just that so many people don't cite the source with the proper footnote. This truth belongs to God. So as they say, a broken clock is right two times a day. But don't hang your hopes for knowing the right time on a broken clock. So the emphasis here is that you and I have to relate everything in our lives to God's servant, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Everything has to revolve around him. He's got to be the first one that we invite into the conversation. He's the first one that we have to bring into the midst of our fears. He's the one that we need to struggle with over those fears. What does the Lord say about him? What insight does he bring? How does he reorient our thinking? What is there really to fear? Or how might your fear fit into the bigger story of what God is accomplishing? See, when we don't bring Jesus into the midst of our health fears, we don't discuss the matter with him, you know, what was, what is, and what is to come, then we're still going to be afraid. And we're going to make medical decisions based out of fear for our health. When we don't bring the Lord into the midst of our safety fears and discuss those with him, why are we insecure? What's happening? What's going to happen? Then we're still going to act out of fear 
when it comes to issues of our safety or our finances or our relationship. It doesn't matter what the issue or what the fear is. We've got to bring Jesus right into the middle of them. And when we do that, we're going to discover that he is the antidote for fear. Martin Luther speaks of anfektung. I am not a German speaker, so if you are, forgive me. Anfektung in his life before he was converted. And this word anfektun has been translated as all the doubt, turmoil, pang, tremor, panic, despair, desolation, and desperation which invade the spirit of man. Now those are the feelings that Martin Luther had before he was converted. Particularly whenever he thought about God as the judge. He felt he could never be worthy of God. And so the, the, these were the experiences. This is what he felt in his life. And it was this acute awareness of his unworthiness of the gospel that, that made it so beautiful to him when, when Martin Luther finally read the words of Romans 1:16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God into salvation for all who believe. But anfektung did not disappear from Luther's life, poof, after he became a believer in Christ. Doubt, turmoil, pang, tremor, panic, despair, desolation, and desperation still invaded his life. And so he writes this, Martin Luther does, after he is a believer. So about anfektung, he said, this is the, the touchstone. It teaches you not only to know and understand, but also experience. That's the key. Experience how right, how true, how sweet, how lovely, how mighty, how comforting God's Word is. It is wisdom supreme. This is why you observe that in the Psalms, David so often complains of all sorts of enemies. For as soon as God's Word becomes known through you, the devil will afflict you will make a real theologian of you. Luther's talking about real life experience. It's his way of saying that it's not until your faith, it's not until your faith is challenged to the point of crisis, challenged to the point of crisis in the face of your fear, whatever it is, that you will know just how real your faith is. And just how real, and how right, and how true, and how sweet, and how lovely, and how mighty, and how comforting, and how wise the Jesus of your faith really is. Only when you talk about it, experience it, or in crisis together with the Lord. It's all just theory until you bring the Lord into your fear. Here's the good news. The Lord does not reject us because of our fear. He already knows that we're fearful. That's what it means to be human. I was afraid, so I hid myself. But He will require you and me to look at Him. He'll require you to look at this story, this bigger story of which we are all a part. And he'll require you to draw some conclusions about your fears when they're placed beside 
him, the servant of the Lord. The one that God chose to serve him by serving his people. That's you and me to bring about his kingdom. See, that's the antidote for fear. Being together in it with Jesus. Seeing, as the song says, the things of earth growing strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. We can put fear away when it comes our way because we have Jesus. You know what? That sounds so simple, doesn't it? Guess what? It is simple. God has designed it to be simple for us. The question is, will you take advantage of the simplicity of God's antidote? Will you bring him into the conversation? Not the one you've prescripted. Not trying to figure out ahead of time what he will say to you or what he will show you. See, I think that's what we do. And I think that's the reason we don't come and talk to him because we already figured out what he's going to say. But behold, interjection. He's different. He's so other than we are. His thinking is higher than ours. So perhaps you don't already know. Perhaps you will see in him something you have never seen before. So do it for yourself. Bring Jesus into the midst of your fear. Do it for everyone else in your life. Think of the difference that you and I can make for Jesus' sake. When Jesus has taken away our fear and we are no longer joining in the tide of rising fear all around us. Think of the opportunities you will have to say, Behold, Jesus, when people ask you, why are you not afraid? I'm telling you, it's worth fighting fear with faith in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for making it so simple for us. We are complicated people. We live complex lives in a complex world. And this is one of those instances where we might be tempted to say, if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. But it is true, Lord. And it is simple. In the face of fear, whatever it is, whenever it is throughout time, your antidote is always the same. Behold my servant. Lord Jesus, when we fix our eyes on you, we seek your face. When we long to hear your voice speak to us, suddenly, Lord, our fears take their proper place. Lord, bad things happen in this world. They happen to us. Things that cause us fear. To deny that would be ridiculous. Lord, it's what we do with the fears. How those Fears look in comparison to who you are and your grace and your goodness and your compassion and your love for us. So I pray, Lord, that you will help us to put our fears in their proper place. They are subjugated to you, the servant, the one and only true and living God, the Messiah, our Savior, 
our friend. Help us to make everything in our lives revolve around you, to bring you first into every conversation, every issue, every fear. In Jesus' name, amen.